We must go across to talk parenting because less entertaining, less praise, less surveillance. Is that the key to happy, confident and helpful children? Well, NPR science correspondent Michaeline Ducleff certainly thinks less is more. Finding herself frustrated by the ineffectiveness of modern parenting advice to prevent daily battles with her toddler, she began researching alternatives to modern Western parenting methods. Now, she set off toddler in tow to live amongst three ancient cultures to experience their parenting firsthand. Her book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, explains what these cultures can teach us about helping kids thrive by being more hands-off. I'm really interested in what you are thinking about this one. Uh, what questions you have around this. 2101 to text us in the studio or Saturday at rnz.co.nz on email. Uh, Michaeline Duclef, welcome to Saturday Morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us today. Um, I guess, tell us about where this all started for you. Yeah. Uh, in the prologue, you write, never before had I been so bad at something I wanted to be good at. And I have to say that I felt very seen with that comment. <laughs> it's very true, actually. Um I feel like everything in my life had come relatively easy until I had I had a daughter. And um, it started actually when she was about two years old. And my husband and I were really struggling with her. I mean, she's a wonderful kid. She's super smart and ambitious and motivated. But at, at two, she was just a huge handful. And actually, for my job at NPR, they sent me down to a little Maya village in the Yucatan, Mexico. And I wasn't expecting to you know, fix my, my parenting problems on this trip. I was doing a story, a different story for them, but the parents there just completely like blew my mind. There was one woman, Maria, who I talk a lot about in the book, um, who she had five kids from about probably six to 19, 18. And these kids were amazing. They were calm and respectful to her. They didn't, she never argued with them. They didn't argue with her and they were incredibly helpful. Like one morning I woke up and, or one morning I was with her mom and I was with Maria in the kitchen and her 12 year old daughter woke up, walked past us and started doing the dishes voluntarily. Like nobody told her what to, what, you know, nobody asked her. And I went over to her and I asked this young young girl, you know, wh- why did you do that? Why are you why are you help- helping like this? And she said, you know, because I love my mom. And this kind of set me out on this journey to tr- try to figure out what these moms in the Yucatan were doing to to raise these incredibly kind, respectful kids. And what I found was that it wasn't unique to the Yucatan; that you could actually find kids like this and families like this all over the world. And um, that's what I set out to do. I set out to figure out how to raise a child that would get up in the morning and and do the dishes voluntarily. (laughs) And go to bed at night without being told to. Um, Oh, yes, yes. exactly. (laughs) We'll get there. Uh, So what is it that you find that developed countries have got so wrong with parenting? Because we think the advice we're following is based on science. You know that's probably the problem. One of the problem, a big problem, is that we think that science can tell us how to parent. And even a lot of sci- scientists, psychologists, told me, you know, cognitive scientists, like this is a crazy idea that like parenting is such a complex thing that it's you know it's easier to land a rover on Mars than it is to fi- you know figure out how to stop your toddler from having a tantrum. So I think that's one of our problems is that we're using this tool, science, for something that it's just not made for and not good at at all. I think the other thing is that we've lost 
our kind of ancient knowledge, you know, in, in basically all cultures throughout history, how to raise a child and interact with a child, you know, was passed down from generation to generation. And, and you have this wisdom, this deep, deep, ancient wisdom that you're, you, you know, you're given to by your parents, by your neighbors, by your grandparents. And about maybe 200, 300 years ago, we started losing that wisdom and we started turning to experts in books like mine. Um, And, and with that, we've kind of gone in this weird path, you know, and, and we, there's about 50 things that we do as parents that are really, we think that they're really common. We think they're really right. And, and yet, you can't find them like in any other culture around the world. And actually, when you start looking at parenting around the world, they look really strange and they have they have big consequences. So how did we lose this knowledge? You know, I think for there's a couple things. I think that one, you know, we really value science. We think that's, you know, and, and rightfully so. I'm a scientist. I'm a chemist, um, you know, and science has done amazing things for our children with vaccines, antibiotics, you know, but um we think it can do things it can't. But second of all, we've lost the teachers, right? So when I had a babe, when I had Rosie almost nine years ago, I went into our little condo in San Francisco and I didn't have anybody to teach me how to raise a kid. And I never really seen a child be raised, right? But in many parts of the world, when you have a baby and actually just, I'm in Texas now and it's more common here, you know, you get your, you come home with your baby from the hospital and you have your mother with you, your grandmother, a neighbor, your aunt, your best friend, you know, there's this kind of uh, extended family and all these teachers and helpers to kind of show you how to do it and give you support. I mean, that's a big part of the book is talking about how humans really evolved to have three, four, five parents, mm. you know, not two parents. And they're, they're, they're so needy. They're, they need so much help, so much food, so much energy that really in Western society, the mom and the dad are doing a job that really five, five or six people are, are built to do and have done for 100,000 years. Yeah, you call this um, phenomenon alloparents in the book. Yes. Um, I suppose tell us some of what you observed, because you went to, as you're mentioning, the um, Yucatan in Mexico. But in the course of essentially, I suppose, researching and, and writing the book, you also visited Inuit in the Arctic and Canada, and also you went to Tanzania. What sorts of core values and elements were you seeing across these civilizations? Yeah, so um, everywhere I, we went, and and I've traveled a lot for my job at NPR too, and you see this, it's very common, is that parents are always helping each other, that raising children is seen as this collective job. So for instance, when we were up in the Arctic at the beginning, I didn't know many people. And, you know, Rosie was three at the time. And, and I, the first couple of days I was kind of by myself, we were staying at this hotel and this woman ran out of her house. And she said to me, like, let me take your baby for you. Let me take this child for you. You can't do this by yourself. You know, you need a break. (laughs) And she literally, you know, she just saw me there by myself doing this. And she was like, this is crazy, you know, that you're doing this. And I felt this everywhere I went that like, parents want to help you. They want to participate in this. They know that children need you. And one of the moms in the Arctic even said to me, like, Rosie needs a break from you. She's tired of you <laughs> and she's acting out because she needs a break from you. She needs more people in her life. So there was 
this this idea of supporting each other that that was really beautiful and wonderful. And in Tanzania, we were with a group called the Hadzabe. They're this incredible group of people who have kept their traditional way of living alive, despite a lot of people trying to take it away from them or force them into another way of living. And so they still primarily get their food from hunting and foraging. And there, the collective child caring is in, is just incredible. Like all the women spent probably eight, nine hours a day together um, helping with each other's babies and toddlers. And at the beginning, I didn't know whose baby was whose or, or which toddler went with which woman because it was just such this huge group effort. And, you know, anytime we went anywhere or did anything, they would just stick a baby on me on my back and be like, you're taking care of this one. <laughs> you know, And so it was, it, it was a very different thing than living in San Francisco where it's like really up to me and my husband to do everything or hire, hire help. So that was a huge part of it. The, the other thing that's really universal and just such an important aspect of raising a child that likes to be with you and wants to be with you is that children are really integrated into adult society and, and, and welcomed into adult society from a very young age. And what, what this does is it teaches children to cooperate with you and work together with you. And it creates that, that 12 year old who gets up in the morning and does the dishes because she's been helping and working with you and working as a team since she was a, a little girl. So ditch the play dates and you'll get a child who does the washing up? You know, I think the play dates are interesting if you want to be with the parents. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, if if you if like I had we had when Rosie was little, I'd have a lot of play dates because I want to be with the woman, you know, the, the mom. And it was became this thing that we were both doing because we both wanted. I think it, it becomes a problem when you're doing the activity only because the child for the child and that you would never do this activity if you didn't have a child. That's when, that's what a lot of psychologists call child centered activities. You know, um, that's when I think you start to get into problems because the child starts to see their role in the family as being this kind of special person that you do special activities for. And it's like I say in the book, like you're kind of their, 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 their executive assistant, you know, your job is to schedule their activities and you, you do things for them and you create this kind of world for them. That's not really real, right? Like we create all these things in our society for children that aren't really real and they're not, they don't prepare the child for you know, growing up and, and being in the adult world. And they also don't teach the child the skills they need to help their family and work together with their family. So I say ditch the trips to the zoo and the, the you know, the playrooms and the, the arcade, all these things, unless you want to go do them. But these things at the end of the day are not teaching your child to be part of your team and work together. They're teaching them that they're kind of um, a, spe- a special a special person in the family. And they're also teaching them that it's, it's the parent's job, like you said at the beginning, to like entertain the child. Mm. So this is unheard of in many parts of the world. Like parents' job is not to entertain the child. Parents' jobs is to get the work done and, and to live and to welcome the child into that life and teach the child how to do those things. Lots and lots of people getting in touch this morning about this. <laughs> Nikki says, Hi, Michaeline. I'm a mother of three and a junior school teacher here in Napier in New Zealand. I've read your book and it's amazing. It's changed how I parent and how I teach. I'm your biggest fangirl in Aww. New Zealand. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Another one, this is quite interesting, actually, because you mentioned the, the 12-year-old who 
goes to do the dishes without being asked. Please ask if young boys as well as girls also did domestic tasks without being asked. You know, that's a great question. And and I think it depends a lot on where the, the which culture you're talking about. In the Maya culture, absolutely, boys were integrated into the day-to-day task as well. Um, as they got older, that those tasks change and they become more involved in hunting and, and building. And, you know, the, the, the tasks in the Maya culture are, pretty, are rather gendered. But absolutely, that across the world, boys are integrated into the jobs of the family. It just depends on, you know, which jobs go with which gender I will have to say that in the Inuit culture, you know, uh, those that genderization is kind of starting to blur. And so, you know, the the boys were helping with the babies. I saw a boy wearing an amaudi. That's the traditional garment that that moms wear to carry the babies around. And I saw boys wearing them. And then on the other end of it, I saw girls hunting, hunting narwhal and participating in those activities. So absolutely, there's gendered roles, but kids are integrated into they're one when they're little and then it kind of splits off as they get older. Um, an interesting question too on sleep. And uh, I think this is actually in the epilogue of the book where you have a story about Rosie and going yeah. to sleep. This person asks, uh, what time on average did the toddlers go to sleep at night and how did they get to sleep? Yeah, so this sleep is like the most fascinating part of this that I was I could write a whole book on. Um, so in general toddlers, it's interesting because babies just kind of sleep all the time, right? Like babies are basically one of the Some babies sleep all the time. (laughs) I shouldn't say all the time. The babies sleep like in random moments, right? Like it's um, like one of the big differences is that in many cultures and where we've traveled, babies are being held all the time, right? So babies are rarely left alone. Like one scene, I saw a baby in the Arctic get picked up by like six, seven different people and like 15 minutes or something. So the babies are their own thing. They just sleep. They're always in contact with somebody and they're kind of always sleeping near somebody. Kids in general go to bed when the, when a parent kind of goes to bed. Um, But the big difference is, is that um, children aren't being told what time to go to bed. They learn uh, very, at a very young age to go to bed when they're tired. So I tell a story of a little girl up in the Arctic. I think she was three. I'm not exactly sure. Um, her age, but three, three to six. And I saw her, um, walk out of the living room and put herself to bed. And I was like, where'd she go? And the, the grandma was like, oh, she went to bed <laughs> and it was like seven o'clock or something in the evening. And, um, it was really striking to me. And I would actually ask parents, like, what do you do to get them to go to bed? And they didn't understand this question. Oftentimes they were like, what do you mean? What do you do? And I was, because it was just like, a nothing burger like kids just went to bed when they were tired and they learned this very early in fact the in the one of the maya moms told me like she reversed the question i said well what do you have to do to get them to go to bed and she was like well they have to do these chores before they go to bed and so like they wanted to go to bed and i i think we could spend the whole like 30 minutes talking about why this is and what mm. this is but i i think it boils down to learning to go to bed is this skill, right? That you feel, you feel, oh, I'm tired. I feel my body's ready to go to bed. And it's a skill that kids learn what tiredness means. And then what do you do when you feel that way? You go to bed. And I think we don't 
children in Western society don't develop this skill because they they're being told when to go to bed starting at a very young age. And there's a lot of tension and stress around that process. Hmm. Uh, lots and lots more coming into us uh, on Saturday morning. My guest is Michaeline Duclef. We're talking about her, her book and indeed her experiences around uh, hunt-gather parents. Uh, Andy says, we lost the connections for raising children at about the time the Industrial Revolution occurred and we moved from villages and extended families to nuclear urbanised families. Another one in... Um, on a similar sort of uh, area, I suppose it says, the nuclear family is a failed experiment. Uh, that mm. is the having a woman at home with young children on her own. That's coming from Anne. And would you agree with that? I think in many ways it is a failed exper- experiment. I think I would point out that it's actually never really existed <laughs> um, in the sense that like, I mean, we have it, absolutely. But uh, what it, what your your listener described hasn't really existed. It's a little bit of a mirage because if you look at when the nuclear family arose in Western society, got really going around the Industrial Revolution and right after that, m- most of the women that were in this, you know, that were at home taking care of the family actually had enormous amounts of help because this only really existed in a, in the upper class. If you look, and so the upper class, they had cooks, they had cleaners, they had, you know, nannies. And during that time, the lower class and the middle lower class were still living in an extended family, still, you know, working together kind of more communally to take care of children. And so this idea and what we many of us do, you know, of like one woman taking care of three kids is kind of a myth. Um, because she's actually got tons of help and it arose in this context where she had a huge amount of paid help, um, which kind of gets lost in our discussion of the nuclear family. But absolutely in the sense that like, it's, it's one of the key things that makes us so stressed out, makes us so feel so, um, exhausted and down and like, you know, that this is so hard. Mm. Um, because like I said, Children are made to be raised, really intensely raised by five five people. And in some some cultures, you see like there was a study that came out this fall that showed that um, in one community, children and toddlers would have like ten people taking looking after them every day. Mm. Um, Megan in Auckland's been in touch on this uh, topic, saying my husband and I lived in the Loyalty Islands when our first child, our daughter was six to 11 months old. I felt rather lonely, she said, but I observed the calm happiness of the local Kanak children who delighted in talking to and holding my baby. We went to a Kanak mm-hmm. wedding and my daughter was cared for by numerous older women and children. I never worried. I wish I could have learnt more about the child raising culture there, she says. And the calm happiness I want to talk to you mm-hmm. about because that is something that um, you did observe as well, the calmness, the kind of... Zen-like calmness, almost. <laughs> yes, and I, I focused more in the book on the on the mothers and the fathers, right? And 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 I got a I got some criticism from the New York Times because it was like supposedly the calm mothers or something. Um, but I want to almost tell that critic like you you should you should travel there and you should you should see for yourself. Um, you know, absolutely. I think that a large part of this is learning to interact with children in a way 
that is calm. In fact, this is a big, huge topic now in the States and parenting. It's all about, I think they call it co-regulation, like learning not to be so reactive to your child. Um, and this is a skill that I think that the mothers and fathers learn as they grow up and as they're, they're, they're young and, and taking care of the younger children. And, 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 and it, this actually really changed my parenting. Probably one of the biggest things was when several Inuit moms explained to me that Rosie, when she's upset and she would hit me a lot when she was little and scream a lot and that she would, there was not this idea that like, she's trying to hurt me. Like we have this idea in Western culture that children are pushing your buttons, pushing, pushing your buttons, um, testing boundaries, you know, trying to manipulate you all these very kind of uh, antisocial views of children. And a lot of the parents would tell me, this is crazy. Like, of course, a toddler is not malicious and relevant like, like this. And, um, and, and instead, they would tell me that Rosie is just this kind of irrational creature who doesn't know how to behave, who doesn't understand. They would say she doesn't have understanding yet. And she doesn't know how to respond or control or, you know, the feelings that she has. She doesn't know what to do with them. And once I started to view that, that this is not personal, this is just her, this is what kids do. These are just kids and little kids. And it's your job as a parent to respond to her in a way that she can then learn the proper way to behave. Once I understood this, it took me a while. It took a couple months, but I was able to kind of have this calm, much more Zen-like composure with her because if you think of a person as manipulating you and pressing your buttons, it's just going to make you defensive and uh, angry, right? And so I think a lot of the Zen-like um, calm uh, composure that uh, that I saw is because moms aren't taking it personally mm. when their children misbehave. There isn't this personal thing of like, oh, now I'm a failure or now like mm. it, it's more like this is how kids are. And it, and and if you yell and argue with them, you're just stooping to their level. Mm. But I'll also say that this Zen, this calmness, probably comes from the fact that they have all this support, you know, and they have, they know that. Like I just talked to a woman today in, who's Mexican American, and she said people always say they're so stressed as parents, but I don't feel that way because I know I've got my my aunt to help me, I've got my grandma to help me, I got you know, and I think this goes far when you feel like mm. you've got this you've got somebody that has your back and who's there to help you every day almost, you know. And of course, so many people do rear children either on their own or in a very small group, you know, maybe two mm. or perhaps three if you're lucky, if you've got a, you know, a, a grandma or an auntie nearby. Yeah. Um, but this is the difficulty. It, it's quite an ask in the Western world to have more than that. And often you end up potentially having to buy that in. And of course, many people right. can't afford to do that. But also, I guess these cultures that you were visiting have different um, different legal and different cultural expectations around child rearing, but also around, you know, the having of children. So they may not have access to contraception. They may not have access to abortion. So it may not be yeah. that they're wanting to have all these children. They're just having to deal with their lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, some of this way of doing it is is necessity, right? That like you've got a lot of children and a lot of the families we were with don't have a lot of resources. And so, yeah, you're working together out of, out of necessity. At the same time, I, I do think that there is 
in, in not looking at, you know, availability of contraception. I didn't, I didn't investigate that. I know that some of the communities we were with do have that. And, and I, I heard from the parents, you know, this is going to sound, and it was kind of unbelievable to me at the time, but that like, they enjoyed their children. You know, like one of the moms told me, like, I enjoy being with my girls. They, they give me company. And there's a, there's even studies that looking at Latin Americans versus European Americans and how helping each other is rewarding and lights up the reward center of the brain in the Latin American contact community and the participants that versus the European um, American participants. And so I think that there is this, this um, feeling of like, this is a big source of joy in my life, children mm-hmm. and family. Um, so, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that a lot of it, some of it is necessity as well. There's an interesting study that looked at whether Maya parents, oh, you know, were raising children to be really helpful because they needed help around the house. And it concluded that, that this wasn't the case, that even families that had the means to, you know, hire help still um, instilled this value in this quality, this characteristic in their children to be helpful. So it wasn't, it's not about just the need of it. It's mm. about valuing the teamwork and uh, and helping each other. And I think this other study that I just mentioned kind of suggests that because it's a source of joy, you know, to, there's lots of evidence that helping is provides way more joy for the person who's doing it than the person mm. receiving it. Mm. Um, I guess as well, we talk about them being ancient cultures, but then cultures aren't preserved and frozen in time. You know, if someone no. from the Yucatan was to come to New Zealand or to the United States and observe what happens in a family, they're not going to get a, you know, a cookie cutter experience. No, and absolutely not. And I mean, Western culture is ancient too, right? Like everywhere, we're all ancient. I, the ancient cultures, um, and the title of the book is the publisher's words, not my own. But I think um, what it, he is trying to get at when he picked that, and we we argued over that title for a while, but was that, and and actually the moms and dads told me this while I was there, is that the the parenting style is based on this ancient kind of tradition and in, in wisdom. And there is a valuing of kind of this tried and true ancient uh, knowledge that we, we in Western culture have kind of, forgotten about or don't value so Mm. but absolutely not i mean every culture that's in the book is incredibly modern you know um yeah in 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 many almost all ways phones video games you know i mean yes absolutely tvs and uh and i'm sure now even more so that way but you know the inuit mom inuit mom would tell me though you know but but we still care we still use the tools that we've had to raise children and we value those tools you know that we've for for thousands of Mm. years i guess also there's a a dynamic of difference um between a much larger family with lots of children and Mm. an only child and i suppose i say that as a as an only child um that i you know i i don't have the sibling experience i don't know what that relationship is like um but i'm interested in knowing how that affected your daughter and how that affected your uh, your relationship with her after you did have these experiences. Yes. And I think definitely there's some evidence that like some of this 
learning to cooperate and work together, you know, it is harder in the context of just these much smaller families, you know, in Western culture, families have shrunk in the last hundred years for sure. Um, and I think though that what becomes more important in, in this context and in what you're talking about where, you know, people are raising children, like what we think of as the nuclear family is reaching out and finding other families to kind of build an extended family with or a larger family with. And I and I do want to point out that in many hunter-gatherer communities around the world, I, I found this surprising, you know, so the Hadzabe live in, in in these camps of about 30 people. Of, and that's common in many hunter-gatherer communities around the world that people will live in these groups of about 20 to 50 people and then they'll work together to raise children and, you know, get enough food and live. And, um, Oftentimes, though, if you look around the world, these aren't their family. They're not blood relatives. Um, and and it, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they move in and out. And so I but the key thing is that they're coming together to help each other. Right. And this is valued and this is this is um, intentionally done and thought of as like this is a good mm. way of living. And so this is what I've done. I've found just a couple families that, you know, want to work together, share my values, share some of my views, and we work together and raise our kids. Mm. And it's not like any exactly like anything in the book, but the core of it is because, you know, the kids, one of the families has three kids and they've become like, you know, uh, nieces and nephews to mm. me and they're co- like cousins with Rosie and we see them every day mm. and we work and we work together with them every day. We get together with them every weekend and they they're more of a family than I've ever had with my blood relatives and they, they, they take away that stress Mm. and there's that, you know, and, um, but we've created that on our own and it's not about having many. You, I always tell people, you don't need a huge group. You just need one or two families that can, that share your desire to work together. And, and it's really beautiful. I love it. I mean, I, it has made our lives so much better in so many ways, and I love being, you know, their aunt. Mm. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time today. Michaeline Ducleff there, who is speaking to us on Saturday morning about her book, Hunt, Gather, Parents. Interested in what you are taking from that corridor this morning, 2101, to get in touch with us here in the studio.